You're listening to a Toronto Centre podcast. Welcome. The goal of TC Podcasts is to spread the knowledge and accumulated experience of global leaders, experts, and world-renowned specialists in financial supervision and regulation. In each episode, we'll delve into some of today's most pressing issues as it relates to financial supervision and regulation. The financial crisis, climate change, financial inclusion, fintech, and much more. Enjoy this episode. Hello, everyone. I am Baba Kapasade, President and CEO of Toronto Centre for Global Leadership in Financial Supervision. Welcome to our discussion on transitioning to a green economy, financial stability implications. I'm delighted that 1140 participants have registered for this event, representing 110 countries, all the way from Afghanistan, Angola to Zimbabwe, Zambia, and all the letters of alphabet in between developed countries and developing economies. Since our inception in 1998, in the aftermath of the Asian financial crisis, Toronto Center has trained more than 14,000 central bankers and supervisors from 190 countries to build more stable, resilient, and inclusive financial systems. In 2016, we began incorporating climate change in our programming because of the substantial implications to global financial stability and risk of crisis from climate change. We did this soon after Governor Carney's seminal speech, breaking the tragedy of horizons and the ratification of the Paris Agreement. Today, we're at a pivotal point to address this existential threat. We now have unprecedented global consensus of the urgent need to combat climate change and to transition to a green or net zero economy. This transition, presents a tremendous opportunity for countries to build back stronger post-COVID-19 and achieve sustainable economic growth and poverty reduction. It is my honor to welcome our two internationally distinguished speakers, Sri Mulyani Indrawati and Mark Carney. Her Excellency Sri Mulyani is a seasoned, influential G20 finance minister for Indonesia. Minister Mulyani was just recently elected as the co-chair of the coalition of Finance Ministers for Climate Action, a position she is sharing with her counterpart from Finland. Congratulations, Minister. She's also the former Managing Director and COO of the World Bank. Mark Carney has served as the Central Bank Governor of two G7 countries and as the Chair of the Financial Stability Board. He is currently the UN Special Envoy on Climate Action and finance and finance advisor to UK Prime Minister for COP26. His Herculean efforts and leadership put climate change on the radar of global financial system. I would also like to congratulate him on the publication of his fine new thought-provoking book, Values, Building a Better World for All. And we have some copies that we will distribute to some of the participants on a draw basis. Toronto Center's mission is supported foremost by Global Affairs Canada, Swedish International Development Cooperation Agency and the IMF, but also Jersey Overseas Aid, Comic Relief, the USAID, World Bank, and the Schulich School of Business. In terms of format, we will have three rounds. First, we start with progress and early lessons. Then we move to implications for financial stability and inclusion. And then we will conclude with the impact of COVID-19. So Mark, we're doing a bit of a reverse of what you have said, credit, COVID, climate, but we do it in a different order. I will pose three questions alternating between each speaker. They have five minutes to answer each question. Then I will take questions from the audience. Please use the Q&A tab to submit your questions. Let's begin. My first question goes to Minister Muliani. Minister, you're known as a successful reformist. What are the key reforms adopted addressing both the drivers and the impact of climate change? And what are the most important lessons for developing countries that you could share with our viewers? Thank you. Well, thank you so much for this invitation and to have a chance to meet Mark Carney again, as well as to address the issue which is very important. That is the climate change, uh, especially during this pandemic time. Um, 
Uh, this is really a challenging time, especially for many countries because the pandemic taking a lot of resources. So from the uh, policy point of view, especially on the fiscal side, we are taking quite a lot of our resource to address this pandemic. But let me share with you about uh, several reform related to the climate agenda which is adopted in Indonesia. I think the most important uh, and also the most challenging for many developing countries to adopt is usually related to the subsidy on the fuel, because this is going to be one of the most uh, important uh, when a country really want to help the poor people, they usually use the subsidy through this commodity and fuel is the most basic and important for many uh, poor household. So changing the uh, subsidy from uh, commodity based into direct subsidy is going to be very critical. And Indonesia adopted that back in 2015, uh, at the 2014. Uh, and also even before that, that was like in 2006. So we use uh, the amount which is saved from this subsidy into uh, cash transfer directly to the poor. That's definitely have the implication for uh, the CO2 emission, especially on the climate uh, related uh, to the fuel. Many uh, 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 reform on the fiscal side can be adopted uh, in a very uh, important way that is on the institution uh, of the Ministry of Finance. For, for example, like the Ministry of Finance, we built what we call it a green budgeting or budget tagging. That is, we are identifying how much resources which is allocated related to this kind of uh, climate change agenda. So that will build a credibility and accountability, especially when we at the same time also have the national determined commitment uh, on a Paris agreement that we need to develop uh, to, to deliver. And that's why mechanism to deliver and accountability is gonna be very critical. Second one, on the fiscal side, we can also diversify uh, financing uh, instrument by issuing a, a, a green bond, both domestically and globally. Indonesia is among the emerging countries who uh, issued this green bond since 2018. When you, when you issue this kind of financial instrument, especially at the global level, they will ask whether this green bond is credible because they are going to link to what kind of program or project which is related to this green uh, project or program. So we have to be able to also have a mechanism to track it domestically, linking this instrument to the project as well as the program. On the project side, we can identify with this disease uh, the category is gonna be a dark green, light green, uh, which is going to be also critical. We also use the instrument, for example, like tax facility in order for us to tilt the balance toward more, for example, renewable tax holiday, tax, uh, tax allowance. is going to be very important for us to be able to then tilt the incentive toward more renewable energy. For Indonesia, as a big uh, country in which we have more 34 provincial area, we have a transfer to the local government. So for the Minister of Finance, you also have this instrument in order for you to incentivize local government. Because when you talk about the climate change, this cannot be done by one institution or by one level of government. It should be actually done uh, holistically by all level of government, or even in this case, globally. But within the country, you can really design this fiscal transfer as an incentive for uh, government to incentivize, especially local government. This is especially related to the forest and forest management. Indonesia has been very successful in reducing the forest fire and deforestation in the past five years. And one of it is actually try to use this fiscal transfer to incentivize local government in order for them to be able to care as well as taking care of the people who live in the surrounding of the uh, forest so that they are uh, also caring for this uh, uh, forest. Um, in Indonesia also, another thing that maybe can be shared by many developing countries is that 
we are uh, geographically located in the ring of fire. So when we have this kind of disaster, uh, natural disaster, which frequently happen, then we need to establish a fiscal mechanism, financial mechanism also, that is going to address this disaster uh, risk uh, financing and insurance. So Ministry of Finance in this case, uh, I've asked uh, for us to be able to then establish this kind of pooling fund, especially because we are geogra geographically very large, so we can pull fund from different provincial area. I think this is also going to provide more certainty of support for area which is hit uh, hard or hit frequently by this natural disaster. Uh, last thing, uh, we established an environment fund, environment fund agency. This agency is not just the agency, but the agency is going to set up for managing the funding, including one of the most important is the carbon pricing or carbon tax initiative. This is going to be the first time for the Indonesia to introduce this uh, instrument market-based, which quantify or value the carbon uh, and we are going to then design how this is going to be introduced within the economy, market mechanism, who should uh, actually uh, managing uh, this carbon um, uh, price and carbon market. It's still relatively new. Uh, for me, I even in this case start studying it and try to think about what kind of institutional setting and the price mechanism or price discovery for this kind of carbon. We learned a lot. You mentioned earlier that now I'm also playing a role as a co-chair of the coalition of finance minister on this climate change. And to be honest, this coalition, which is now having 60 countries join, including uh, the most recent United States, which is going to be a very good forum for us as the finance minister to learn from each other. What is the experience of uh, others that can then be used and can be adopted? As uh, the conclusion, when you talk about reform, we cannot talk just in a vacuum environment. As a finance minister, uh, you also deal with the political situation. So reform sometimes very difficult because in the short run, it can be perceived that this is going to create uh, some implication to the welfare of the people. While sometimes the benefit can only be enjoyed in the medium and long term. And this kind of trade-off need to be addressed if you are going to be able to push the reform agenda. Climate change is exactly the same. Thank you, Minister. Very, thank you very much for uh, that opening and setting the context. Uh, Mark, this question is for you, and I want to uh, bring a perspective of what has happened recently. So the climate change agenda has been advanced by a Paris Agreement. 160 countries have made the Paris Agreement mandatory. And as the minister said, the US has rejoined. What changes have you seen since the Paris Agreement been adopted? In other words, are governments doing enough in your judgment? And is the political willpower sufficient to mitigate the climate catastrophe? Thank you. Well, first off, thank you very much uh, to the, uh, you, Babak, and the Toronto Centre for organizing this. Uh, Sri Mulani, a minister, for your leadership on this and many issues. And uh, I think there's no better news than uh, you're assuming the, the co-leadership of, uh, of the climate finance ministers, an important group. And with you, they're a group that will translate into action uh, from, uh, from concepts. Um, it's an important question. I think we should be objective about this. Uh, as, as people know, uh, when the Paris Agreement was struck um, and when country uh, NDCs, the, the country plans were uh, objectively assessed, uh, the, the view was that even if all these plans were put in place, um, the temperature would still warm by 2.8 degrees. Um, subsequently, not all those plans were put into place um, and we're on track to somewhere between three and a quarter, uh, potentially higher degrees as we, as we meet today. Um, so it's exceptionally important that these, uh, this progress that has been made in clarifying, codifying, legislating uh, that net zero, those net zero objectives in, 
in uh, in um, a number of countries. We're at almost well, we're actually at 130 countries now who have not just ratified the Paris Agreement, but have set out uh, net zero as an objective. Um, and uh, that uh, that objective is met with the type of policies that the minister just uh, described, uh, described for uh, Indonesia and, and, and these uh, very important adjustments in terms of from fossil fuel subsidies towards uh, pricing carbon, for example. Um, and that will be one of the core tests of uh, the Glasgow COP is whether we've had this shift in the scale of policies uh, across the world so that we can start to get to our objectives. So. Uh, and we can we can go into more detail on some of those policies if you wish and, and people wish. I want to say though, I'll just say a couple of quick words on the on the financial side because you know it was only five a little more than five years ago, obviously, when Paris was struck. And at that point, uh, the TCFD disclosure regime was a concept. Uh, we launched it uh, at Paris uh, with Mike Bloomberg, um, and the work uh, proceeded rapidly. Within eighteen months, um, the standards were. Uh, proposed uh, to G20 leaders at uh, the Hamburg summit. I attended the Hamburg summit. Uh, they were uh, endorsed at the Hamburg summit, but really we've had two or three rounds of corporate reporting with these standards. The quality has varied uh, a bit. The coverage has varied a bit, but uh, the momentum is very strong. And now the debate, um, the discussion and the action is about making those standards mandatory. Um, in some countries that will be through national legislation such as the United Kingdom, uh, that's already announced. In other countries, uh, we would expect that countries would pick up on what the IFRS Foundation is uh, intending to do. Uh, it still needs to be formalized, but uh, the steady, setting up of the sustainable standards board, uh, beginning with climate, that will promulgate um, standards for climate disclosure. And of course, uh, as, as we know and participants know, uh, IFRS standards of disclosure cover about 140 uh, countries. So we move quickly to global coverage on that. Um, but again, I said it, I'd be objective. Let's, let's be frank in terms of risk management of climate um, within the financial system. Uh, this is becoming a mainstream issue. It is a C-suite issue. Uh, CEOs and risk managers are now focused firmly on climate risk as investment risk, as portfolio risk. Uh, that is a big change. However, uh, only about 5% of um, financial market participants think that climate risk is priced correctly at present. So there's a greater focus uh, but there is a lot of this still to translate into asset prices, into actual risk management, um, and therein lies both the risk and the opportunity um, that is in place. And so what we're looking to do, and maybe I'll finish uh, here, uh, what we're looking to do for COP26 in Glasgow is put in place the information, the tools, and the markets so that the market can take into account climate risk, manage it actively, that goes to issues, um, not just disclosure, but to um, risk management, supervisory expectations around risk management in some jurisdictions, stress testing um, of the whole financial system for climate related risk. It also goes to building some new markets, uh, including uh, markets for carbon offsets, uh, voluntary carbon offsets um, that, uh, and I'll just take the moment to observe that, you know, potentially 15% of that market, which is a, 50 to $100 billion a year market uh, potentially comes from a major country like Indonesia. Um, so it's one of the building blocks of uh, potentially very large capital flows that would be associated with properly managing climate related risks. So uh, if I can just sum up, I would say that there is real momentum, there's considerable momentum in the financial sector amongst authorities and supervisors but we have a long way to go still on country policies and we have a long way to go still. Uh, and by the way, our intention is to go that long way in a short period of time in terms of fully integrating climate risk management uh, into the financial system. Thank you. And as you highlighted in your book, I mean, it's the ultimate intergenerational unfairness question, right? Because this generation is not getting impacted by climate change as much as the future generations are have to deal with it and they have to really be bearing the brunt and supervisors like everybody else will have to uh, do their part as well. So thank you for that. Minister, turning back to you, I'd like to identify the premise of my question so we take it as granted, which is developing countries have been hit hardest by the pandemic and are expected to be impacted the most by climate change. So given the current development priorities to address the economic crisis induced by the pandemic, so you have your hands full, 
what are the key implications of this green transition for developing economies and how do they differ for developed economies? I know this is a very big topic, but if you could uh, talk about it very in a very uh, concise manner, that would be excellent. Thank you. Thank you. Well, uh, as you said, uh, pandemic uh, is really uh, a game changer and becoming the highest priority, uh, if you call it necessary condition for the recovery of any economy is our ability to manage and control this pandemic. And definitely also taking uh, significant resources from the government. So when we talk about the green transition, the first is of course uh, the benefit of, if you call it uh, the, the benefit from this uh, pandemic is the, uh, the mobility of the people is becoming then uh, severely reduced. And that's have a positive impact on the CO2 emission. I think one of the measurements showing even in Jakarta here in, in Indonesia is that you are getting more a blue uh, sky because of the severe, uh, significant reduction of the traffic. Now, when you talk about the transition, this is definitely is not an easy, but uh, it, it is requiring quite a lot of element on this transition. And we always talk about a just transition. First, when you try to have the design of the recovery process of the economy, and at the same time, you are going to design it in a green way. Then you are going to then identify what kind of activity that you can identify. For Indonesia, there are maybe some other countries have their own uniqueness. For example, if you talk about energy, we have the energy, which is based on coal. We also have the fuel base like oil, gas, and also now renewable. So when we are going to have a more renewable, that means when the de demand declined because of this pandemic, the question is not the today, but if the demand is going to pick up, how we are going to address this uh, increasing energy demand with more renewable in place. And that is exactly what we call it, the transition what non-renewable into renewable. That will require a lot of uh, incentives sometimes on, even in this case, a very detailed contract because many of the power uh, is actually uh, under a long-term contract. Now, if you talk about uh, forestry in Indonesia, we also have the forestry and also the palm oil. We have the ability to use uh, uh, from fossil fuel into biofuel. And that is something that also can create an incentive for a more renewable and also showing a more responsible uh, forest and uh, palm oil uh, management. Third, if you talk about transportation, then you are going to facilitate more infrastructure in order for you to be able to incentivize people using the mass rapid transit rather than using your own car or a bike line. That is also another when you can uh, talk about uh, the, the recovery and transition. And then for Indonesia, we have a huge uh, area which is uh, related to the mangrove and replanting mangrove is also one. So for Indonesia, we have a lot of choices when you talk about green transition and green recovery. The question is of course, how you are going to use a limited fiscal at this very moment to incentivize and providing a signal. Mark mentioned about uh, the financial instrument and the financial risk, which is currently when I issue Mark, in this case, uh, green bonds, the market is definitely not dis differentiating between green instrument and non-green instrument. Whether, whether you talk about the price, the yield, they are not really putting additional bonus. So you're right in this case that the financial sector has not really put this climate agenda within their preference of risk and then translated into yield. So that is all the area that we could think of for, uh, for us to be able at this very moment, redesigning the recovery process, taking into account what area that you actually can push more the agenda of this uh, transition toward a greener. There is more like a transition which is maybe not significant, but more fundamental, for example, like the market pricing, as well as the investment that will tilt the appetite of the risk toward more renewable than non-renewable or less carbon emission 
then more carbon emission. We'll return to this podcast after this short break. Registration will open soon for our 2021 virtual international programs. The securities program is from May 10th to May 14th. The banking program is from June 7th to June 11th. And the insurance and pensions program is from June 21st to June 25th. Our renowned programs focus on the latest emerging and accelerating risks, such as ESGs, cybersecurity, climate change financial risks, and fintech, regtech, and souptech. Registration opens soon. Follow Toronto Centre on social media or visit our website at torontocentre.org for the latest news and updates. We'll return to our podcast now. Thank you so much, uh, Mark. Uh, staying on the theme of financial stability, last year, the network of central banks and supervisors for greening a financial system, which I think now has about 80 members, uh, published a set of uh, reference scenarios that tested strategic resilience of the financial sector to different carbon pathways and climate scenarios. I'd like to take it for granted that proper carbon pricing will contribute to greater financial stability. Now, my questions are, uh, what do you expect the climate stress test will show? For example, will firms be able to withstand sudden adjustments? And finally, a subject that's important to Toronto Centre, what do you see as the role of central bankers and supervisors here? Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Uh, well, this, this is incredibly important. And you mentioned a moment ago about um, the tragedy of the horizon and the issue, the intergenerational aspect of uh, climate change. And uh, in effect, what stress testing does, uh, climate stress testing does, is it brings the future uh, to the present um, and asks uh, firms to assess their strategy, uh, their current strategy. If they were to continue to roll forward over time with their current lending strategy and investment strategy, um, would that be robust? Would it be resilient to um, various climate scenarios. And as you rightly say, uh, the NGFS scenarios, which are open source, uh, freely available and uh, expected to be used and tailored and, uh, and improved as a consequence of that, uh, they look at three uh, scenarios. Um, the first is the first best scenario, which is that we make a smooth, steady, predictable, credible adjustment uh, towards net zero. Uh, we, we do collectively. Firms can, uh, businesses, uh, borrowers um, uh, can anticipate those adjustments and adjust their strategies accordingly. Um, and there is minimal transition risk. And of course, because we're getting to one and a half degrees, there is physical risk that increase over time, but they're not the extreme physical risk. Uh, the other end of the spectrum is it's business as usual. We're headed to that three and a quarter, three and a half degree world. Uh, there's not much transition risk, but physical risk steadily mount uh, over time. And the middle scenario is a possible scenario, which is um, we do a bit, but we don't do enough. And then we do a lot um, quite late uh, in order to get back on track. And that is a scenario where that one would expect that there is considerable stranded assets um, on the balance sheets of, uh, of banks uh, and, and accordingly losses. Uh, as a result of that. And really, you know, it's important to have uh, the value of these scenarios is that there are mul multiple scenarios. Uh, firms, again, they look at their strategy and see if they're robust to different uh, potential uh, climate outcomes that um, they uh, have that extended horizon. So uh, the question is, what does the balance sheet of a firm look like if it's frozen? And it's uh, what will it look like in 10 years, in 20 years, in 30 years time? Um, and very importantly, that the climate outcomes and the macro and financial outcomes are integrated. So uh, they are coherent in, uh, if I can use that, and that is a term, a precise term of art. I can use that at the Toronto Centre and with the participants because they'll understand what I mean by macro financial coherence. So they all add together. They are coherent in that regard. Um, the point really is to determine um, uh, the strategy uh, of, of, of a bank and determine the appropriateness of the strategy of the bank over time and to get senior management and boards thinking about what potential adjustments should be made to that strategy if countries make do uh, or live up to their objectives um, as expressed in the Paris Agreement, as expressed in net zero legislation, um, as expressed uh, uh, increasingly in the course of policy. Um, and um, 
this process, now a final point, uh, there are about 18 central banks uh, and supervisors that are, are either currently using or about to use these scenarios to conduct uh, climate-related stress tests. Um, uh, more will follow. We will be a lot uh, better informed over the course of the next 12, 18 months uh, in, terms of, uh, uh, in terms of the scale of the potential risks. But crucially, this and last point is this is an iterative process. Uh, this is about building risk management capacity uh, within the, uh, the financial institutions themselves and candidly also within the central banks uh, and the supervisors. So there's a better understanding of the scale of the risk and the inter interconnectivity of the risk and what can be done uh, to mitigate those risks over time. Thank you, Mark. And you might be uh, pleased to know that uh, one of the things that Toronto Centre is well known for is crisis simulations. Since the global financial crisis of 2008, they've conducted over 120 crisis simulations, standard ones, but also very tailored ones for countries. Canada, Indonesia, where the tailored ones also one for all the eight Nordic Baltic countries. So we are actually developing uh, stress test toolkits for supervisors and regulators on climate uh, risk. And we're hoping to be able to launch it sometime around the COP26 by the time it comes around. And uh, so hopefully we'll make some progress by then. Now let's move to the COVID uh, picture. Uh, you know, Ontario today is going to enter in a stricter form of a lockdown than before. So COVID has proved to be extremely resilient. Uh, although I thought our response to it was being resilient. Minister, this question's for you. In one of your uh, speeches last year, you mentioned that COVID-19 provides the opportunity to transform the Indonesian economy. Can you collaborate on how, uh, elaborate, sorry, on how COVID-19 as a game changer could have positive implications in boosting global and domestic policies in relation to climate change? Thank you. Well, first, uh, as we know, that COVID really changed uh, dramatically and even immediately for all countries. We cannot imagine that suddenly you cannot go to the office. I was thinking that everything was stopped at that time. But you know, as a finance minister, that you are responsible in designing what kind of fiscal reform. And I work with uh, closely with Central Bank in designing how we are going to respond on the macro side. Uh, from fiscal, monetary, and then financial sector response uh, on this kind of shock. And that can be done even without we are seeing physically. And that's happened overnight. So we changed totally the way we work. We cannot imagine. Actually, we have to change one of the article in our law because in that law that the meeting of the financial sector stability forum should be physical meeting. So we changed that article that now we, that is also legitimate to have a meeting to Priya, uh, via this kind of uh, uh, online. So that really game changers. Many of what we call it um, government spending related to the meeting, event, traveling is severely reduced. I actually cut almost 60% last year of all those government budget. And of course, then we use and refocus this money for COVID related directly, like uh, social protection, we increase for the vaccination, uh, testing, tracing. So definitely COVID changed the way we work. And the way we work is more climate friendly because we are not using more what you call it this mobility. But of course there is a downside to this that is now the activity in the economy is declined very sharply. So when we are going to like change the economy, current and in the future, the thinking is like how we are going to collaborate globally because like climate, COVID have no jurisdiction. So this is a global problem. So definitely there are level of uh, uh, policy or uh, that need to be addressed uh, that need collaboration. At the national own level, then we can and we should push reform, for example, from social safety net up to what I call it earlier, that is uh, re uh, redesigning the economic activity, which is much more toward uh, environmentally sustainable. So if you are going to create job, then this is a job labor intensive, for example, for mangrove, mangrove uh, replanting. 
So how you are going to use all those instruments in order for you to be able to then pushing more the needle toward more uh, sustainability and climate change. Then at the regional level, you can, uh, you definitely have, or global level, you have all the collaboration in addressing this issue of recovery, COVID recovery and climate change. Many countries definitely have resource constraint. So in this case, multilateral development bank and many MDBs, they are responding very quick by providing resources. Don't forget when you talk about the Paris Agreement, NDC, there is not only just the NDC, there is also a commitment of 100 billion by advanced country annually, which is not delivered. But many country is not going to wait for that. But certainly without that financing, it is not going to be able to address this issue because many countries, especially developing countries, now even facing a much more fiscal constraint because of the COVID. And then the third one is, of course, that all this climate change agenda can only be achieved with technology. So access to the technology is going to be very critical. Again, this kind of collaboration, as well as how you are going to redesign on your own recovery process, which you are going to have a more technology access that can then uh, provide you with the opportunity to continue develop without uh, facing a threat of of emission, uh, higher emission of the carbon. And then the third one is of course technical assistance. So there are level of what you call it, COVID related to the recovery process and climate in which not only one country can do it because this is definitely a global public bet that need to be addressed through a policy that can provide a global public good change and that will require resources, technology, as well as technical assistance, especially for many countries. Uh, for each country own uh, your commitment, like in Indonesia, our NDC, even if you look at the 2011-2019, uh, our ability to reduce the emission is still 50% from what we supposed to be delivered during this, uh, on this uh, NDC of the Paris Agreement. And of course, we have the NDC using our resources as well as NDC if we are going to receive support uh, from the international level. And that's why I think this is really very clearly mentioned by Mark. This is, cannot be addressed by one country alone, should be really global. And from standard setter, and I like the idea of really putting this on the risk more explicitly, at the corporate level, at the national level, and at the global level. So you are going to price the risk properly. It's not like skewed like this one. Everybody like reducing as if the risk can be delayed and we are not going to see it anyway. It's going to be the next generation. So that is going to be a very dangerous bias uh, of the, uh, what we call it, older generation. Uh, if you compare intergenerational concern in this case. Thank you very much. As you were talking, it just dawned on me that, you know, as uh, tragic as COVID has been, in a diabolical way, it's an interesting warm-up for our challenge of climate change, with two exceptions. When it comes to climate change, which is a slow-moving type of a pandemic, we don't have a vaccine and we cannot self-isolate. So if we thought we have a tough now, hmm. let's face what we're going to have later. Mark, staying on the, co the concept of COVID-19, uh, COVID has exposed a lot of things. Thankfully, as in your words, we've become we've been more Rawlsian than Darwinian in terms of valuing life and knowing the value of things versus price, but has exposed the need to invest and to build resilience, especially in emerging markets and developing economies. And as you said, public financing alone will not be enough. Blended or private financing flows will be needed. In January this year, the Task Force on Scaling Voluntary Carbon Markets published a blueprint for new carbon market. What is the potential scale of this market and how will this new market inf infrastructure help capital flow to developing and emerging economies? Thanks. Thank you, uh, thank you, Bhavik. Two, two points, if I may. Um, first, I'd just like to uh, reinforce what um, the minister just, uh, one of the points the minister was making around 
um, uh, development and, uh, and blended finance and the importance, uh, just underscore the importance that um, we get quickly to a position where uh, the multilateral development banks and development finance institutions um, are Paris aligned um, uh, across their operations um, and at scale and at scale that would unlock the scale of blended finance that's required uh, not just for mitigation, but also for resilience um, in emerging and developing uh, economies. And that is an issue of some urgency. Um, and uh, we need to make a meaningful progress on that uh, between now and Paris or, and uh, Glasgow. Secondly, uh, to your direct question on uh, voluntary carbon markets, this is a complement uh, uh, to uh, the absolute uh, requirement for companies uh, and countries to reduce absolute emissions. So just to be absolutely clear up front, uh, the first and foremost focus is to reduce absolute emissions. Um, but it, to put that absolute emission reduction in context, um, if we're going to stay on track for uh, one and a half degrees, um, we need to have reduced uh, emissions by 2030, by the end of this decade, by 23 uh, gigatons of CO2 equivalent. Um, the potential um, within that overall envelope of 23 gigatons for carbon offsets, uh, particularly natural climate solutions, uh, is around uh, one and a half um, or so gigatons, one and a half to two gigatons. So in other words, less than 10% of the total reduction. That said, uh, the scale of that uh, order of magnitude, that scaling up in voluntary carbon offset markets uh, could create a market, as I said earlier, of somewhere between 50 and $100 billion per annum. So we shouldn't confuse that $100 billion figure with the one um, that uh, the minister just mentioned, which is public uh, money. This is a separate issue in terms of private capital flows. Um, and quite frankly, and that market today, by the way, is measured in hundreds of millions of dollars a year. So this is a totally new market. It's a totally different order of magnitude. Um, and it requires uh, the, uh, the type of plumbing of a properly scaled market. It requires absolute integrity in terms of the offsets themselves. So monitoring of those offsets, ensuring that um, uh, the solutions that are put in place aren't just here today, but they're here tomorrow. Um, it also requires integrity of the demand side for that market. And the demand side for that market will be corporate purchasers, in other words, companies that have net zero plans, companies that are reducing their absolute emissions, but for reasons of timing and, uh, and technology need to have some degree of, um, of offsetting uh, as part of their reductions. And I'll give you a classic example, which is Microsoft. Microsoft is making up all its historic emissions. The only way it can do that is through offsetting. Um, now, uh, bringing these two, uh, two together um, can create very sizable uh, flows from uh, the developed uh, economies to the emerging and developing world. We think about 90% of the demand for offsets is going to come from companies in uh, their headquartered in advanced economies, but three quarters to 90% of the supply of those offsets. Um, those nature-based solutions are going to come from the emerging and developing economies if this market is going to work. Um, so this is a very large complementary uh, capital flow that we're looking to scale up. Um, there is a blueprint for this market that has been put in place uh, or been released earlier this year. There are 190 uh, institutions, a mixture of private sector, NGOs and others that are working in, in six different work streams to develop um, uh, the uh, the protocols for this market by Glasgow, um, and then we would uh, we would look to have it launched. So it's it's an important component, as is blended finance, as is the government um, the hundred billion, and as is um, the core mainstreaming of climate finance into the financial sector, which will also drive very large uh, cross border flows. Thank you. Now, at this point, I hope I can have the speakers as my partner. We, uh, we have 27 questions. Let's try to get through as many of them as we can. This is where I would ask you to please keep your answers uh, quick CNN style. Let's go no more than 20, 30 seconds so we can hit, hit as many of them as possible. I see a question from our uh, board member, Barry. Hi, Barry Campbell. In addressing climate, uh, how do we address incompatible timelines? climate impacts, investment returns, and election cycles. Mark, would you like to take this one? 
Yeah, it's a great question and hello, Barry. Um, it, part of it is uh, stress testing is one way to pull the future to the present. So uh, what I described earlier uh, on stress testing, supervision as well is there. But one of the most important things, and this is a point Janet Yellen and I made uh, about six months ago in a, in a paper we authored for the G30, is if you build a credible path of policy, um, then the market starts to pull, anticipate future policy. So uh, the minister uh, referenced at the start of our conversation, fuel subsidies and potential carbon prices. If you have a carbon price that such as in Canada that rises to $170 a ton by 2030, people start to react to that today. They pull forward adjustment. And that is what, uh, that is another crucial mechanism to smooth uh, that adjustment. Thank you, Mark. You get a gold medal for concision. Minister Mugliani, over to you, a rapid response. How do we ensure net zero is something real and not yet another creative accounting? Well, it should be first uh, an agreement regarding how to measure it, the net zero. And then there is an accountability mechanism that needs to be addressed. But of course, in achieving something, you really need uh, uh, resources. So that, that is like a, a, a causality on that one. So I, I think the most important is there is an accountability mechanism that needs to be established and how we are going to match those accountability with resources. Great, and then you and others as government authorities will help uh, standard setters to pay attention to that. Thank you very much again for that concise answer. Very good. This next one is from uh, our friend, uh, Peter Rutledge, the head of Canada's Deposit, uh, Deposit Insurance Corporation. Uh, it's for Mark. Uh, climate stress testing may probably may and probably should lead to different risk weighings for bank assets exposed to transition or physical risks. How long will it take to adjust risk weighing standards for climate risk and how quickly must that change occur to fuel faster adoption of green technologies, investment and adoption? Uh, so, uh, hi, Peter, and a couple of things. First is that, um, as you know, the uh, Basel standards are uh, microprudential, um, so they are focused on risk. Um, we, I do think transition risk is going to rise and therefore uh, will increasingly be embedded in the risk weighting of uh, Basel. Um, it will probably take a round or two, uh, or at least a round of stress testing in order to uh, inform those uh, adjustments to risk weighting, um, uh, as, as well as uh, work of uh, prudential supervisors. I do think as well that um, what is potentially um, moves uh, in tandem with that is higher risk weighting for brown assets or assets that have a high degree of uh, being stranded. Okay, great. Um, now, this is a question from the Courageous Anonymous uh, for uh, Madame uh, uh, Mugliani. Is there concern that COVID is managed and the economy, is there concern that after COVID is managed and the economy returns to more pre-COVID state, that organizations will revert to their old ways? And what can we do to mitigate our short-term memory and attention span? I guess what I take from this question is, how do we make sure we learn the lessons and stay with the lessons? Please go ahead. Well, you really have to think and lock uh, the gain that you get from this COVID. For example, at the organizational level, at the Ministry of Finance, I observed that we changed the way we work. So while the, this is still happening, I asked that the way the business process, the KPI measurement, the way we are going to uh, monitor the work of our team, it's going to be adjusted and that you lock the change. So you are not going to like wait until this pandemic change uh, finished and then, then you are going to then starting to decide what needs to be changed. During this change, you can institutionalize it. I think that is the most important. That's at the institutional level. At the country level, then you can really think about the policy. For example, for me as a finance minister, I look at the, all the budget. So the traveling budget can be severely reduced because of this COVID. Then I said that, well, actually government can operate with this much of this traveling budget. So we can change that and use this resource for a much better uh, program or a better priority. So this kind of thing that you try to institutionalize, you, I agree actually the question that people tend to have a very short memory. 
after we finish, then you are going to go back to the business as usual. Uh, as Morgani mentioned, all effort to create a standard setter and putting in the race, uh, in the price or market mechanism is going to have a much better uh, long lasting result rather than if you are just discussing it. So now the problem is, of course, for all of us, after we are all recognizing that we have pandemic, we have climate change, they both global problem. So how you are going to identify the solution mechanism in place and a credible step toward that, that will lock what we call it the gain from this pandemic. So we can avoid this, what you call it a short memory uh, when people then go back to the business as usual. Thank you. I hope people will remember that. <laughs> but thank you very much for that. That's great. Uh, Mark, this question is for you. Um, uh, we have a cynic in our fold here. How good are the current risk assessment tools for evaluating climate risks to individual companies? A recent article in Nature Climate Change questioned the suitability of existing climate models for this purpose and also expressed concerns about the black box proprietary nature of these services. Uh, well, I haven't read the article referenced, um, so it could, it could refer to just about anything. I mean, certainly, um, I'll say in general, uh, make a couple of comments. One, uh, just in terms of ESG um, metrics, um, uh, sometimes which are in index uh, weighted or indices uh, and have element of black box. Uh, one has to be cautious in terms of applying them. Um, for example, the correlation across um, the 70 largest or most frequently used ESG indices is less than 0.5. So you can get very different results uh, depending on which um, uh, ESG index uh, you use. Um, I, I think the cynic wasn't listening uh, earlier to the um, uh, discussion of uh, the NGFS scenarios and the open source nature uh, of those scenarios. Uh, I, I would say further that the biggest risk uh, in the near term is transition risk, um, which requires, uh, and so in other words, ensuring, and that is an iterative uh, risk between policymakers uh, and financial institutions. Um, and I think the point that is becoming clear uh, and will should certainly be clear by the end of the year for financial institutions is you have to look at a scenario where policymakers mean what they say so that policy is uh, robust enough, it's aggressive enough, it's clear enough to achieve that one and a half degree objective, which after all is the objective of the Paris Agreement. It's the focus of the G20 uh, countries. And so are your, is, is your strategy resilient to that? Are your assets, how do your assets look in that scenario? Um, and are you taking advantage of the opportunities that uh, the transition to uh, a more sustainable economy brings? Thank you very much for that. Uh, Minister Mugliani, I'm going to sort of integrate a few questions together because there's a lot of anxiety about the fact that we're not taking uh, climate risk seriously. As you see, a lot of people are looking at how they can invest better. Uh, different people talk about different issues in different countries. Your own country has 7,000 islands, and who knows how many of these islands will remain if there's a rapid climate crisis happening. What does it take for governments to bring the same sense of urgency to climate risk as they have been able to successfully do with COVID-19? Essentially, they've been able to shut things down and all that, but climate still seems to be a very slow moving train. You lose a lot of sleep on that, but what is your basic thought on that to help our audience understand what is the pressure on you and others like you in making this an urgent issue? Well, Baba, let, let's learn from this pandemic when the, the threat of the safety and the security of the people at stake, the government will move, right? So the pandemic definitely is a threat. So no matter what, the government respond to that by doing a lockdown, you are you allocate your resource for your health spending, for testing, tracing, treatment, as well as vaccine. So that's because you don't have any other choice. So the question in this case for the climate, because we always like tend to think that this is going to be a long-term problem, while it's really not that long, right? So how you are going to make this as a real credible threat for the government in this case? I think my thinking and when I'm uh, with my own experience, you can talk especially with the younger generation better because they are the one who's going to face with this one. And for Indonesia, our demographic composition is dominated by the young generation. 
they are more in this case informed because they are connected to the internet they are more aware the one which is really care about how our ocean has been become like a, a place for all those waste especially plastic many of the younger generation now initiated that they are no longer using uh, the straw plastic straw you are not going to use your plastic bag it's more coming from the younger generation so i will invest a lot on this uh, education as well as information and putting this element of risk within the population especially those who's going to face with this the second one i also firmly believe uh, on the price and market i think when you put and introduce within the the price and especially when you are going to be able to put it in a global consistent mechanism then the country have no other choice but to follow and this is going to be the most challenging and that's why the UNFCCC the next Glasgow meeting is going to be very critical now that uh, the biggest uh, economy uh, joined uh, and also uh, all countries said that they are committed to this uh, then you are going to be able to have this opportunity to achieve what we call it the global uh, system or mechanism as well as introducing the real price, carbon price, that will be uh, credible and effective in signaling the behavior, government, people, as well as corporation, including financial institution. I think that is the most powerful one. And again, within that context is of course, establishing this market carbon price is not gonna be easy. I, mean, I must say, uh, the more that I learn about this, how can you at this very moment talking about the same commodity that is carbon in one jurisdiction is only $2 per ton and then the other one is 40 and the other one is gonna be 50. I mean, if you are having a one global market, then, then everything is going to the, to the 50, the highest bidding. That is exactly that maybe Mark is going to solve this problem, but that is exactly that. You're not going to have this fragmented price and market when we are dealing with one commodity, one earth, one climate change problem. So this is going to be how you are going to match this one global mechanism for this one global problem. Uh, but then uh, there is a challenge of, of all this uh, fragmentation and jurisdiction which is uh, creating a constraint, a real constraint for all countries to participate in a just and fair way. Yeah, thank you, that was excellent. And, and Mark, I'd like to end with this question, is a pretty challenging question, is what is the uh, role of financial supervisors in countries where governments are not doing enough to manage climate risk to the financial system? To give you some context here, without proper carbon pricing, it's very hard to mobilize everybody and all of that, but at the end of the day, supervisors and regulators never get a good press for what they do. They always hold the bag when something goes wrong. So what is their role in those countries where the state itself is not taking this issue seriously or just pays lip service? Thank you. Yeah, it's, um, well, the, the first is to recognize, um, as I think the question does, uh, the limits of uh, the role of uh, financial supervisors. They're uh, not making climate policy. Um, that is the responsibility of governments. Um, and governments will move at the, at the, at the pace that they, well, the, the, they will move at their pace. Um, what is the responsibility, <clears throat> though, of the supervisors is to prepare for a scenario um, in, in, in part to prepare for worst case scenarios. Uh, now, in the case that we just we're, we're talking about, the worst case scenario is that actually there is inaction, 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 and then there is action. Um, so then there is a price that's put on carbon, or then there are uh, higher emission standards, or then there is a broader movement towards a more sustainable economy. And the question is, are there a lot of stranded assets that are built up in the period of time between today when there's not action and tomorrow when there is action. Um, so that's the first issue that supervisors have to look at and whether uh, the system is robust to different climate policies down the road. Uh, are those risks being taken into account? Are they being considered by the financial, private financial institutions, their boards um, in their risk management? 
And if they're considered and put to one side, then, well, you judge as the supervisor whether that's prudent uh, accordingly, but they should not be ignored. They should be considered uh, and uh, the appropriate uh, measures uh, taken. Um, obviously, if everybody is in that position, then we're potentially in a situation where uh, the physical risks are only going to mount, and then that is a direct responsibility of uh, the supervisors in order to ensure that prudentially the system, uh, the system is ready for those. Thank you. I just want to thank our speakers. You really kicked ass. This was a very interesting topic. I enjoyed talking to you. I think our audience did by the questions that we saw. And as stated by them, uh, there are grounds for optimism. Innovation and global cooperation are needed to transition to a net zero economy. So it's not all doom and gloom. There's actually an opportunity here for us to transition and to really help revive our economies. Uh, God knows we need a lot of help um, paying for all the COVID debt. Toronto Centre will continue offering programs on climate action, and uh, we uh, hope to be able to come back and bring you more problem, uh, pro sorry, more programs like this. And one of the promises of our programs are that they start on time and they end on time because we want to bring our speakers back. Thanks again, and <laughs> thank you. Bless everyone. Thank you. Take care. Bye, everyone. I'll see you soon, you, uh, Minister. Bye.